Welcome. Merry Christmas. I'm Summer Shepherd, and this is a very special episode of No Seriously, How Do I Do This? You see, at Christmas time, we gather together as families, we exchange gifts. And so this Christmas, we would invite you to gather your family because we have a gift for you, an opportunity to cuddle up and share some stories to get you in the mood for the holiday, to get your spirit set on the one who is the reason for this season. And besides, who doesn't love a good Christmas story? All right, cuddle up, girls. Arwen, you wanna get on the bed? Let's cuddle up. Are we gonna sleep here, Mama? No, it's not bedtime. It is story time. Yeah! I can't, I can't get under a blanket. What's story time, Mama? We're going to be listening to some Christmas stories today. You excited? Yeah. So cuddle up, cuddle you up. You sound like you're recording it. I am. Yay! Well, our first story is called A Walk One Winter Night, written by Al Andrews and read by Dave Konauer. It was cold that winter evening as I ambled down my quiet street. I needed a walk to clear my mind of all the clutter and stress of the season. It seems that every year it gets worse. More obligatory parties, irritated drivers and panicky shoppers, long lines everywhere. I remember a time when I was more expectant, when the reason for all this celebrating meant everything to me. But sadly, this night, my internal monologue was, let's just get this thing over and get back to normal. Frankly, my cynicism troubled me. And when I am troubled, I take a walk. Even if it's near midnight, even if it's cold, even if there are still things to be done. The hour was late, and a light rain was falling. Stray flakes of snow twirled and mingled in. From windows and trees, the lights of the season sparkled through the heavy mist, like stars aching to beam brightly on this dreary, dark night. Turning up my collar, I pulled my jacket tighter. That kind of cold finds its way through most any opening. As I walked, I saw them out of the corner of my eye. Mary, Joseph, the baby Jesus, displayed in a wooden stable in someone's front yard. The usual characters were assembled as well, shepherds, sheep, a camel, and the wise men three. On the stable's roof, a precariously perched angel looked on and was tilting slightly to the left. All of them were illuminated by two bright floodlights shining from the grass in front of them. I almost passed them by. They were easy to miss as I've grown accustomed to their presence. They are, after all, available everywhere in all sizes, ornament size, mantle size, coffee table size, and yard size. They come in a box, easy to assemble. But that night, and I'm not sure why, something caused me to turn my head, inviting me to linger. I stopped to look at them for a while as one would stand in front of a Rembrandt painting in a museum. I must admit, it felt somewhat odd and awkward. After all, grown-ups don't pause and stare at yard nativity scenes. But for some reason, that night, that moment, felt I should be there to witness something to see. I folded my arms and I looked, obedient to this mysterious nudge. She wore blue. Mary always wears blue, a neatly pressed, clean blue garment. Her face, porcelain and untouchable, had a fixed expression, pleasant and peaceful. With her fragile hands folded in prayer, she gazed down adoringly at her child. She was perfect, this Mary, pristine with moisture glistening on her smooth ceramic shawl. Joseph wore brown. Joseph always wears brown. Brown is a fitting color for a character relegated to the background. For someone who never gets top billing. 
His eyes appeared vacant and his beard was neatly trimmed. He was there as he always is, on the edge. He can't seem to find his place. Everyone else has something distinctive. Wings, crowns, gifts, halos, a shepherd's crook. But all he has is brown. Then there was the baby Jesus. His tiny arms extended. The star attraction. A halo encircled his little head, reaching from ear to ear. A clean white fabric wrapped around him. Swaddled, I suppose, is the appropriate Christmas word to use. He smiled an unearthly smile. He's always happy, this manger Jesus. It looked like he'd never slept and never cried. It didn't appear that he wanted to be held, nursed, or cuddled either. I won't take the time to describe the others, but you know them well. You probably even know where each is positioned in the stable. The shepherds go there, and the camels and sheep over there. The wise men there, there, and, and there. I imagine you two are accustomed to their presence. I remained standing, trying to stay warm, looking at them through the gauzy mist. I pondered. I simply couldn't relate to them, in any way. They seemed remote and untouchable, just like this season had become for me. With considerable guilt, I wondered, why don't I like these people? After this abrupt and irreverent thought came to me, I half expected the ground underneath to open up and swallow me whole, or a bolt of lightning to descend with a flash and a snap, leaving a little pile of smoldering ashes that used to be me. I closed my eyes and waited for the end. <laughs> Thankfully, neither the heavens nor the ground opened, so I continued my gaze. And then something happened. Something I frankly don't expect you to believe. I heard a noise coming from Mary's direction. It startled me. Who's that? I said. Though her figure didn't move, a soft voice pleaded. This is not me, she cried. This is not real. And her voice broke. Please, listen to me. My garment, it isn't this clean, and it's not this brilliant shade of blue. It's a blue faded by the dust of a long journey to Bethlehem, and it smells of my sweat and of the mule whose back I rode upon. My blue is stained with red, the blood of birth. It's soiled by the dung of a stable floor, and my face, my real face, is blemished. I'm a teenage girl. My brow is furrowed from worry, worry about this baby, about tomorrow. What will Herod do? Will he find us? And my eyes? My eyes are red from tears of pain. I am so lonely and afraid. This is my first baby and my mother is not here with me. This is not who I am, she said again. I am real. Please let me be real. And her voice trailed off. Her words, both gentle and moving, reached inside of me so deeply I could barely breathe. And while I was catching my breath, I heard a deeper voice. You are wrong about me too. It was coming from Joseph's direction. This is not me. This is not real. Please listen to me, he said firmly. I started to take a step backwards, but his voice riveted me in place. Listen, he repeated. Really listen. I am not the quiet, simple character you make me out to be. My eyes are not vacant. Hours ago, they were full of fire when I grabbed the innkeeper's tunic with a tight grip and said, Don't you tell me that there is not some room somewhere. And he found a place for us. I am a man with a purpose to travel where I was told to go and to lead my family safely there. And we made it. Now that we are here, I am still on guard, for we are in danger. Joseph continued, 
Yes, I wear brown, but it is for stealth. I blend in with my surroundings, and from my vantage point, my eyes scan every opening in this place for anyone who is out to do us harm, and no one will get by me. Let them try. I am the keeper of this light, and I will keep him safe. You are wrong about me. This is not who I am. I am real. Please let me be real. His words soaked into me like evening's mist. I felt admonished and awakened to something that was true. And then I heard a cry. I looked at Jesus in the wooden manger. He was thrashing about in the hay. He had soiled himself and he looked uncomfortable. His cloth was twisted in his arms and legs. He grimaced from the prickly straw. His face was red and his cry grew louder, the cry of a hungry infant. His toothless mouth opened and he arched his back. He cried so hard that he ran out of breath, and for a moment, it was quiet. But I knew it was the quiet before he drew another breath, and then he wailed so loudly, I expected the lights in the nearby houses to turn on and the neighbors to come running out. I wondered if he too would speak, but he didn't need to. Somehow, his words were in me, and I spoke for him. This is not me. This is not real. Please, listen to me. The reason I came, the reason I was sent, was to be real, to feel everything you felt, to know everything you need, because I needed it too. To hurt like you've hurt, laugh like you've laughed, skin my knee like you've skinned your knee, and have my heart broken like your heart has been broken. I came so that one day, or one winter night, when you come face to face with your defeat, your moment of absolute need, you can come to me and say, you know this too. Lead me through it, and I will. This is not me. I am real. Please, let me be real. Then there was a silence, a long stillness that hushed the wind and pushed away the noises of the night. In the quiet, I was being given room, room to feel and consider what I'd just seen and heard. And out of the silence, the truth appeared like stars revealed by parting clouds. Maybe the figures before me weren't real because I had made them that way, so they'd be predictable and safe, easy to ignore and box up after Christmas, out of sight and out of mind. Maybe if Jesus wasn't real, he would be tame and small. Maybe I had rendered him untouchable because I was afraid of his touch. I'm sorry, I said. I know this isn't you. I can see it now. You're not who I've seen you to be untouchable, perfect, something I made rather than someone who made me. You are real. You are true. You are here. I'm so sorry, I said again as my eyes brimmed with tears. The sorrow nudged me to kneel next to a shepherd on the wet grass in front of something so real, so very real, I couldn't even begin to comprehend it. As I knelt, I became part of the story and the story became part of me and I felt his gentle pardon. Suddenly, everything expanded. This scene, this night, my heart, and I felt real. I stood and remained there a while, quietly looking at them as they gazed back at me, and I realized something. I liked these people now, and I think they liked me. Shivering, I wondered if Jesus was cold too, so I laid my scarf over his hands and his feet, the same hands and feet I would one day see again. I tucked him in as best as I could. Good night, I said to him. Sleep well. You've traveled far. 
I stayed beside him for a few minutes, just as I once stayed behind my own newborn sons as they drifted into sleep. Then a low, regal voice came from one of the wise men. He whispered as if he was aware that Jesus was sleeping. We, like you, were drawn to this place and have journeyed far to come here to see what you have seen. And what you have seen is what this world has been waiting for. And from a shepherd standing behind Joseph, I heard another quiet voice. Once you hear the angels sing, you will never be the same. If you listen carefully, they're always singing. And then there was quiet. No more voices, no more movement, no more surprises. I sensed it was time to go. I started the walk back to my house. The cold wind and a few flakes of snow urged me along. My pace was slow and thoughtful. This walk had become a journey I didn't want to end. Something had returned to me, and I yearned for it to remain. When I reached the corner of the street, I thought I heard singing, and I turned for one last look. In the distance, I saw a warm glow coming from a small wooden stable in a yard down the street, sheltering something inside that was older than the stars and bigger than our whole wide world. And it was real. And it was real. And they were real. I mean, the whole situation, what we celebrate at Christmas was a messy event. Birth is always messy. Okay, sorry, it is. But that birth in a messy stable between people messy from traveling, entering into a messy world was a messy savior. He was stinky. He was a baby. He was crying. I love that picture because it's not one we get. The sterilized picture of Jesus. That's not the Jesus I know. The Jesus I know willingly entered into a mess to fix a broken world. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. The giving of Christ by God the Father is by far the greatest Christmas gift that anyone has ever received. But giving gifts at Christmas has continued on as a a cherished tradition. It's something we love in our house. Maybe you love it in yours. The Magi, or the three wise men, they gave gifts to Jesus as well. And in their honor, this story was written. It is by O. Henry. It is called The Gift of the Magi, read for you by Lisa Williams. The Gift of the Magi, adapted from the story by O. Henry. What could possibly be done? $1.87. That was all. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Poor Della had scrimped and saved for an entire year with this result. Three times Della counted it. $1.87. And the next day would be Christmas. There was clearly nothing to do but flop down on the shabby little couch and howl. So Della did it. All her hard work for nothing. All her pretty plans ruined. A present for Jim, her brother, the most important person in her life. That was all she asked. A present for Jim. Della finished her cry and went over to the dresser to powder her face. She gave a little sigh and turned to look out the back window. She stared blankly out the window at a gray cat walking a gray fence in a gray backyard. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and she only had $1.87 with which to buy Jim a present. $1.87. 
many a happy hour she had spent planning something nice for him, something fine and rare and sterling, something just a little bit near to being worthy of being owned by Jim. How everything had changed. And it always seemed for the worst. There had been happier days. They felt so far away now. She could barely remember Christmas Eve two years past. Papa had to work late. Papa always had to work late. Mama had been in the kitchen since early in the morning, cooking and preparing the Christmas dinner. Jim had found what most certainly was the best tree in all the city, and he had struck a good bargain besides. They spent the entire afternoon decorating the tree, she and Jim. When Papa finally arrived, all was ready. What a wonderful Christmas. The food, the songs, the presents, the family. But that was all gone now. Papa was gone. Mama was gone. A lot of people died that winter, that horrible cold winter. Jim and she had been on their own ever since. They had made out all right, despite the hardship. Jim had been good to her. They had been good to each other. And now Christmas was here. Della had worked all year out of the little four-room apartment when there was work as a seamstress. She would sew garments long into the night, usually by candlelight, as she counted on the savings and gas fuel towards Jim's present. Jim worked as a clerk in a bank where he made $20 a week. They made a living, yes, but that was about it. Expenses always seemed greater than their hard-won effort. Life had asked a lot from the 15-year-old girl and her 16-year-old brother, but Della would not be denied. There must be something that could be done, something that she could do. She was determined to make Jim's Christmas the best it could possibly ever be. Della went back to the dresser and sat deep in thought. She gently pulled her hair down to its full length and stroked the soft strands with a brush. As she ran the brush through the long, smooth locks, a smile, just a tiny wisp of a smile at first, came to her lips. It grew, and it became a full-blown grin, ear to ear. Della knew in a moment just exactly what to do. Della jumped up from the chair and ran to the mirror. There she stood, turning slightly from side to side, pulling her hair back from her shoulders. She let the long strands fall rippling and shining towards the floor. It reached below her knees and made itself almost like a garment for her. She stood still for a moment, admiring its luxury. Now, there were only two possessions of Della and Jim's in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch that had been their father's and their grandfather's before. The other was Della's hair. To both, it would take more than a king's ransom to wrestle from them such beloved treasures as these. But as Della stood before the mirror, her eyes shone with such a brilliance that no amount of gold or silver could ever compare. Della did her hair up again nervously and quickly, once she faltered for just a minute and stood still while a tear or two splashed on the worn red carpet, but just for a minute. On went her brown jacket, on went her old brown hat. With a whirl of skirts and with the brilliant sparkle still in her eyes, she fluttered out the door and down the stairs to the street. 
when she finally came to a stop, the sign read, Mademoiselle Sophronie's Hair Salon, hair goods of all kinds. Della hesitated, then entered. There before her stood Mademoiselle Sophronie, quite large, very pale, and with a chilly expression that hardly looked Sophronie. Will you buy my hair? asked Della. I buy hair, Mademoiselle said simply. Take off your hat and let's have a look at it. Della removed her hat and down fell her beautiful hair. All the ladies in the salon eyed her with envy. Twenty dollars, said Mademoiselle, as she lifted the mass of hair and carefully eyed the soft locks. Give it to me quick, said Della. Mademoiselle took up her favorite pair of scissors, and it was over. The women in the salon never spoke a word. A hush fell over the place. Everyone in the salon clearly mourned the young girl's loss. Everyone, that is, except Mademoiselle. For the next two hours, the shopkeepers in town held their breaths as a frenzied whirlwind passed in and out of their shops. Della was ransacking the stores for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores. And she had turned all of them inside out. It was a platinum chain, handsome and simple in design, displaying its value by substance alone, as all good things should do. As soon as she saw it, she knew it must be Jim's. It was possessed of only the purest qualities, quietness and value, like Jim. $21 they took for it, and she hurried home with the 87 cents. With that chain on Jim's watch, instead of the worn leather strap that now held it, Jim would be properly anxious to give the time in any company. When Della reached home, her joy over Jim's present was tempered a bit by common sense. She lit the gas and took out a curling iron. Setting herself to work, she began to repair the damage made by her generosity and her love. Within 40 minutes, her head was covered with tiny, close-lying curls she looked at her reflection in the mirror long and carefully and with a touch of sadness. Oh, but what could I do? What could I do with a dollar and 87 cents? Della drew a deep breath and let out a deeper sigh. Then she lit the stove and made some tea. Jim would be home soon. Jim was never late. She heard his step on the stair of the first flight, and she turned white for just a moment. Della had the habit of saying a little silent prayer about the simplest everyday things, and now she whispered, Please, God, let him not be unhappy when he sees me. The door opened, and Jim stepped in. He looked thin and serious. Poor fellow, he was only 16, and to be burdened with so much. He was in great need of a new overcoat and a pair of warm gloves. Jim stopped inside the door. He didn't move an inch. His eyes fixed upon his sister with a look that held neither anger or surprise or even disappointment. Just a blank, far off kind of look. The kind of look a person has when they think they've forgotten or lost something of importance. Jim, please, Della cried. Don't look at me that way. I had my hair cut off and sold because I couldn't have lived through Christmas without giving you a present. It'll grow out again. You really don't mind, do you? My hair grows really fast. 
Please, Jim, say Merry Christmas and let's be happy. You've cut off your hair, Jim said half to himself, as if the fact was unable to enter fully into his mind. Then he stared around the room as if Della's hair might magically appear at any moment. You needn't look for it, Della said. It's sold. I tell you, it's sold and gone. It's Christmas Eve, Jim. Be good to me because it went for you. Jim woke from his trance and drew a package from his overcoat and threw it on the table. Don't make any mistake, Dell, he said. There's nothing in the whole world that would make me think any less of my sister. But if you'll unwrap that package, you may see why you had me going a while at first. Della was so excited. Her nimble fingers tore at the string and paper, and then screams of delight and joy, and then sorrow. A flood of tears and wails flowed from poor Dell, so that it was some time before her brother could calm and soothe his sister, for there lay the combs, the set of combs, side by side, that Della had worshipped for so long in the store window, beautiful combs with jeweled rims, just the color to wear in her long, beautiful hair, the hair that was gone. They were expensive combs, that she knew. Oh, how her heart had yearned over them without the least hope of ever having them for her own. And now they were hers, but the hair they would have adorned was not. But she hugged them close to her. And at length, she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, my hair grows so fast, Jim. Then she jumped up and let out a little cry. With all the fuss, she had almost forgotten Jim's present. She hadn't given Jim his present. Della eagerly held out the beautiful chain in her open palms. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a spirit almost as bright as the joy in Della's loving eyes. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Dell, he said, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. You see, I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose I give you a hand at making Christmas dinner. I'm starved. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful tale of two foolish children who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all who have given gifts, these two children were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the wisest. They are the Magi. Can you imagine giving what was most precious to you to please the person who you love so much, to do something that they would never forget, that would show your love? Well, that's what Christmas is about. That's what God did for us and ultimately, that brings us to where we are right now, about to share with you the most important Christmas story that you could ever hear, the Christmas story. 
adapted in the Jesus Storybook Bible, read for you by Jason Racco. He's here. The Nativity from Luke 1 through 2. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people, just as he had promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking, in the darkness, he came. There was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great, 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 great grandson of King David. One morning, this girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared right there in her bedroom. He was Gabriel, and he was an angel, a special messenger from heaven. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. You don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to someone else. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. You will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful, Mary said. I felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God? Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see. And she believed. I am God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I will do. Sure enough, it was just as the angel had said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. Now, Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town King David was from. But when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon, Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old tumble-down stable. So they stayed where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there, in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world his wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, his baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped him up to keep him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as his cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. Because of course, 
he had. The Light of the Whole World, the story of the shepherds from Luke 2. That same night, in amongst the other stars, suddenly a bright new star appeared. Of all the stars in the dark vaulted heavens, this one shone clearer. It blazed in the night and made the other stars look pale beside it. God put it there when his baby son was born to be like a spotlight shining on him, lighting up the darkness, showing people the way to him. You see, God was like a new daddy. He couldn't keep the good news to himself. He'd been waiting all these long years for this moment. And now he wanted to tell everyone. So he pulled out all the stops. He'd sent an angel to tell Mary the good news. He'd put a special star in the sky to show where his boy was. And now he was going to send a big choir of angels to sing his happy song to the world. He's here. He's come. Go and see him, my little boy. Now, where would you send your splendid choir? To a big concert hall, maybe? Or a palace, perhaps? God sent his to a little hillside outside a little town in the middle of the night. He sent all those angels to sing for a raggedy old bunch of shepherds watching their sheep outside Bethlehem. In those days, remember, people used to laugh at shepherds and say they were really smelly and call them other rude names, which I can't possibly mention here. You see, people thought shepherds were nobodies, just scruffy old riffraff. But God must have thought shepherds were very important indeed because they're the ones he chose to tell the good news to first. That night, some shepherds were out in the open fields, warming themselves by a campfire, when suddenly the sheep darted. They were frightened by something. The olive trees rustled. What was that? A wing beat? They turned around. Standing in front of them was a huge warrior of light blazing in the darkness. Don't be afraid of me, the bright shining man said. I haven't come to hurt you. I've come to bring you happy news for everyone everywhere. Today, in Davidstown, in Bethlehem, God's son has been born. You can go and see him. He's sleeping in a manger. Behind the angel, they saw a strange growing cloud. Except it wasn't a cloud. It was angels. Troops and troops of angels, armed with light. And they were singing a beautiful song. Glory to God. To God be fame and honor and all our hoorays. Then as quickly as they appeared, the angels left. The shepherds stamped out their fire, left their sheep, raced down the grassy hill through the gates of Bethlehem, down the narrow cobble streets, through a courtyard, down some steps, 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 past an inn, round a corner, through a hedge, until at last they reached a tumbled-down stable. They caught their breath. Then quietly they tiptoed inside. They knelt on the dirt floor. They had heard about this promised child. And now he was here. Heaven's son, the maker of the stars a baby sleeping in his mother's arms. 
the baby would be like that bright star shining in the sky that night, a light to light up the whole world, chasing away darkness, helping people to see. And the darker the night got, the brighter the star would shine. Those were some really good stories, Mommy. I love Christmas. Me too, babe. Me too. <laughs> well, as we settle in in our home to ring in this holy holiday, and as you do the same with your family, I hope that your joy is restored, your peace is refilled, that laughter bubbles over, that you have delicious food and, and shiny presents under the tree. I hope all of that for you. But what I pray is that as this holiday unfolds this year, as it rolls into next year and continues on for the rest of your life, that you are constantly brought reminders of what Christmas is all about, the mess <laughs> that God entered into when he sent his son to heal this broken world and the sacrifice that he made to show just how much he loves us, how much he loves you and yours. And so from my family to yours, Merry Christmas.